Good morning, everybody. I want to read scripture with you this morning, and I invite you to pull out a Bible with you, whether it's electronic or in paper. It doesn't even matter what translation it is. Um, I'm going to be reading from the message this morning, and I'm doing that because this is a passage that we've read. If you've been around the church, we've read this a million times. You've heard it over and over. And when I read it in, in this particular translation, it, it, it sparks uh, kind of a fresh look at it for me. At least it did this morning. So I want to read it from that. Matthew chapter 6, verse, starting at verse 26. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. For there's far more to your life than the food in your stomach and more to your outer appearance than the clothes that you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description. or uh, they're, they're careless in the care of God. And you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone, by fussing in front of a mirror, ever got taller by so much as an inch? All of this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes such a difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out in the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. So verse, verse 30, if, if God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never seen, don't you think he'll attend to you? take pride in you, do his best for you. What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, not to be so preoccupied with getting so we can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. So steep your life in God reality, in God initiative, in God provisions, and don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now and don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we've read this passage so many times and um, boy, how easy is it for us to get all worked up about the things going on around us and the things that are happening in our lives and the things we need. But really, so much of that just steals our attention away from you. We lose focus on you and your care and your provision and your love. And we know we don't even have breath unless you provide it. So today, Father, let us see you in with new eyes we want to trust with full confidence that you've got me in your arms today as chris comes and speaks this morning will you let us see jesus fresh and new and invigorate us to enthusiastically run after jesus help us to see the richness of life when christ is at the center speak through chris directly to our hearts and souls we are open it changes as a result to be more like you amen that clip is from the 2004 movie the passion of the christ and uh, that scene happens very near the beginning of the movie and in the scene we see Jesus stomping on the head of the snake in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, some of you who are um, avid Bible readers, and maybe you have read the Gospels many times, you're perhaps thinking to yourself, hmm, I don't remember reading about Jesus stomping on the head of a snake. Uh, that's because it's not there. Now, that is not to say that this stomping on the head of the snake is not in the Bible, because it is but it's not in the Gospels. In fact, it's not in the New Testament at all. It's actually in the Old Testament 
In fact, it's in the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And uh, you can turn there in your Bible if you like. Uh, that verse will be on the screen in, in a few minutes, but uh, you can get there and, and uh, read that verse um, in advance. Um, and I think as you read it, what you'll notice is very descriptive language. Uh, you read the, the cursing of the snake, and you read a, a prophecy, a prediction that there will come one born of a woman whose heel uh, will be wounded by the snake, a wound from which he, this one born of a woman, will recover, presumably by way of resurrection. But he himself will deal a crushing death blow to the snake, uh, crushing its head, a wound uh, from which there will be no recovery for, for the snake, for the serpent. And so this movie scene depicts Jesus as the one who will deal this death blow to the serpent or Satan by virtue of what Jesus does on the cross. And so this scene in this movie does, I think, a really good job of alerting us as viewers as to how Old Testament imagery gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we're in this series and we're calling it Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And so what we want to do is to learn more and more to see Jesus in the Old Testament. He tells us that the whole thing is, is actually all about him, that he shows up on every page. And so we want to learn more and more to adjust our focus to see Jesus pop out of the Old Testament. And so last week, we spent some time in Genesis chapter 1 looking for Jesus in the creation story because we know from the New Testament that he's there, right? John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 all tell us that Jesus is in fact the creator. And so we went back to Genesis 1 to say, okay, where's Jesus? We know he's here. And so in Genesis 1.1, we saw God the Father. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we saw God the Spirit. But boy, where's Jesus? Well, John in his gospel really helped us gave us a, a very, very good clue clue as to how to find Jesus in, uh, really, in the Genesis 1 narrative. And of course, in Genesis 1, we, we read, um, and God said, he said, he said, God said, uh, he speaks and creates, speaks and creates, speaks and creates. And so John said, you know, pay careful attention to how God creates. He always creates through Word. And then John said in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and was God. And so we went back to Genesis chapter 1 and we took special note that this creative energy that emanates out from God, His Word, well, that's Jesus. What we see in Genesis 1 is not just some impersonal creative energy. This is the Word of God. This is Jesus who was with God and was God. And the Word became flesh. And uh, so it's fascinating to see, and I think powerful to see, that Jesus is the Creator. That changes the way that we read Scripture, knowing that. And we learned that at creation, Jesus actually knew as he's creating, how things would turn out, how things would pan out. He actually knew in advance that we would fall short. And he'd already planned at creation to do something about it. He'd already planned to, to step into his creation and to come as our rescuer, as our redeemer, even though he knew it would cause him pain and suffering. And yet he went ahead because of his incredible love for us. And so not only knowing that Jesus is the creator, it changes the way we read scripture, but it changes the way that we read creation around us because Jesus creates knowing what was to come 
And so he purposefully creates everything around us to teach us, to reveal his love and to reveal his redemptive purposes. And so we read all of creation differently. And so today we want to kind of follow along with that, but rather than looking for Jesus in creation, we want to practice a little bit how to see Jesus in Old Testament imagery, how to see Old Testament imagery find its fulfillment in Jesus. And so um, I did the homework uh, that I talked about last week. How did you make out uh, with the homework? I read Genesis chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3 in slow and meditative fashion. And uh, as I read, um, I tried to get my mind kind of nudged in the direction of the mind of God. I tried to imagine what it would be like to be Jesus, creating a world where, where everything I create is designed to express my love and my redemptive heart, my redemptive intentions. And so I read Genesis uh, 1 slowly and paused looking at the things that Jesus created. And so I paused, you know, in, in chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2 talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the water. And I thought about water. And water is, is an incredible substance. And so Jesus creates water and he does so, you know, right at the beginning of this creation narrative. And so I know that Jesus creates to reveal his love and his redemptive purposes. And so he creates water purposefully. And then, you know, Jesus would enter in as our rescuer, as our redeemer into creation. He creates the arena of his own redemption. And he entered in and he said, I am living water. I am the water of life. And he says, I am what you need for life. And if you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you living water. You'll never thirst again. And so we look at water differently now. I look, I went for a walk last night and I looked out on Lake Huron and I look at Lake Huron differently now. I see creation differently. I see that water and I think of Jesus. He created that water to reveal his love for me, for us. He created that water to reveal his redemptive intentions and then he tells us that he's living water. So I look at that now and I see things differently. And then you read on in Genesis chapter one and you see where Jesus creates land and he creates so many different formations of land. And, you know, uh, I'm here in Bruce County and uh, we're so blessed to have all kinds of varying formations of land that we get to, to look at on a, on a regular basis. And, you know, Jesus creates rock and he creates sand to show his love and to show his redemptive intentions. And then he enters into his creation and he says, you know what? You can build the house of your life on rock or you can build the house of your life on sand. You can build the house of your life on me, Jesus says, or you can build it on your best idea. And that's sand, right? And so even at creation, you can see that Jesus already has mapped out in his mind the whole Sermon on the Mount. You talk about preparing your sermons well in advance, right? I do well to be just a, a day or two ahead. Jesus is so um, in tune with his mission, uh, with the fact that he's entering in as rescuer and redeemer. He had that whole sermon all mapped out. And so you keep reading in Genesis chapter one and, and uh, Jesus creates um, uh, vegetation and um, um, you know, plants that, that are for food and whatnot. And so I think of him creating grapes. And uh, so Jesus creates grapes. Like keep in mind when he creates, none of this exists. He's inventing all of this. He's, this is his imagination at work and it's incredible. And he thinks up grapes. 
And then he says, you know, with a little uh, decomposition, with a little decaying process, you've got wine. And then he comes, he enters into the creation and he talks about uh, new wine and he turns water into wine. And then on the night he was betrayed, he took a cup of wine and said, this cup, well, it represents the New Testament in my blood. It's incredible. And so we look at, we look at grapes differently. We see his love and we see his redemptive plan. We, we talked last week a little bit about trees, how Jesus created trees. And, and trees are just wondrous things, incredible. And uh, of course, this is Canada, so I, I always think of the maple tree first. And to think of beautiful maple leaves that um, take in carbon dioxide and give off life-sustaining oxygen. And so Jesus imagines trees, he creates trees, knowing that one day he's gonna enter in and he's gonna hang on a tree, a tree that he created. And that in doing so, it will be life-giving. He'll absorb our sin and he'll give us his righteousness. Like I'll never look at a tree the same way again. We see Jesus, we see his love, we see his redemptive heart. And birds of the air, he creates those. And lilies of the field, here's a kind of a, a local crop of daylilies. And uh, Pastor Dave read from Matthew chapter 6, uh, and, he, and he read the words of Jesus uh, talking about birds and lilies and, you know, everything that Jesus creates. In everything, he creates opportunities to, to teach us. He creates opportunities to reveal his love for us. And he creates opportunities to showcase his redemptive purposes. Jesus created fish. He thought those up, created them. And then he enters into the creation and he calls his disciples and he says, come and follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. Jesus created sheep. He's the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. He said, I'm the lamb of God before there were lambs. And he creates lambs knowing that he's going to willingly be the lamb of God to take away our sin. Jesus creates goats and uh, he'll talk about sheep and goats in Matthew chapter 25. And then the pinnacle of creation, Jesus creates humankind. He creates us. Human beings are of first priority and first importance in creation. Everything else that Jesus creates is of secondary importance. Everything else that Jesus creates besides us is for the purpose of revealing his love and re revealing his redemptive purposes for us. We are of first importance to Jesus. And so he creates us in his image and in his likeness. And man, that is a rich and deep theme that we could spend uh, days, months, years in and probably never plumb the depths of all that it is to be created in the image and likeness of God. But just to kind of scratch the surface, it for sure means that uh, because God has intellect, emotion and will, I am created with intellect, emotion and will because God is love. First John 4, 8, God is Love and love is a relational um, thing. And so God, Father, Son, and Spirit is love, relational love, relational oneness, relational intimacy, perfect relational harmony. And God creates me and you in his image and likeness. And so we are created with a capacity for and a need for intimacy. And so even in our intimate relationships with loved ones, family, with brothers and sisters in Christ, in those intimate relationships where we see harmony and intimacy and love and, and, um, and peace, that itself 
is a reflection of the intimacy that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Even in those intimate relationships, we see Jesus. Even in our, our physicality, our physical beings are created intentionally by God as a picture of the spiritual intimacy that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus in creation thinks of this incredible way that even human beings can physically become one. And Jesus thinks up, okay, I'm gonna need two genders for this. Uh, humankind are all in my image and like this, but they're not all gonna be the same. Uh, there's gonna be male and female. And so he creates us with these very unique components which uh, match up in a pretty wonderful way. And even our physicality reflects the intimacy of Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus, um, um, we're alerted to the covenantal nature of marriage. Even in Genesis 2, we see that. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They'll be one flesh. So even in the, the covenantal, exclusive loving relationship of a man and a woman. Yeah, we see the intimacy of the Godhead, but even in the physicality of marital love, that's a reflection of the intimacy of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's no mistake that God says, I am the husband who loves you like a bride. So in everything that we see in the scripture, in the creation around us, even in our own selves, as we think about our intellect, our emotion, our will, our capacity for intimacy, our own physicality, we see Jesus. We see Jesus in everything. Everything breathes Jesus, and we wanna to learn to read that in the scripture, in the creation, even as we think about ourselves. We wanna see Jesus and uh, see him clearly in increasing fashion. And uh, as I mentioned, I did the homework. I, um, I read Genesis chapters one, two, and three, and I went for the walk. In fact, last night I went for a, a really nice walk by myself, actually took my notes with me, um, walked in, the, this was in Kincardine, down by the water near, um, near sunset. <laughs> it was pretty, beautiful last night, pretty spectacular. And you know, when we think of the things that are around us, we, we wanna to learn to even experience Jesus in everything that we do, whether we're at work, whether we're on vacation, uh, whether we're um, uh, resting or cleaning the house, whatever we're doing, we want to experience Jesus. We want to, we want to reckon him, not only as the creator, but the sustainer, the, the fact that right now in this moment, it's Jesus who's holding everything together. Everything about us, everything around us is a reminder of Jesus. Uh, we want to experience him in the creation around us as the creator and the sustainer. Now, in, uh, I mentioned Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Um, you know, before you get out of Genesis chapter 3, we get some bad news, right? We learn um, that sin invades the human experience and, and the creation itself becomes corrupted. And so even as I look around me and I see the water and the grapes and the sheep and the trees and the animals and so on. And I see Jesus in that, I see his love, I see his redemptive purposes, but I'm seeing it in a corrupted version, in a sin-ridden version. Even as I think about myself, my intellect, my emotions, my will, my physicality, my capacity for intimacy and to experience intimacy, it's a beautiful thing, but I'm seeing it in a corrupted version, a sin-ridden version. And the beautiful thing is, you get to Genesis 3.15, we've learned all of this, 
And in Genesis 3.15, God steps in and he pronounces judgment on the serpent. Here it is. This is Genesis 3, uh, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you. This is God talking to the serpent, okay? And I, God, will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed. Um, what is her seed? Some translations use the word offspring. What is her offspring, her seed? Is this referring to people in general? Is this referring to um, uh, the nation of Israel in particular? What is her seed? And it's interesting, in the next phrase, God switches pronouns to uh, singular, masculine. Uh, here it is. Let me read the whole thing again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Then he, singular masculine, he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. So he will crush a singular human. He will crush your head, uh, serpent, and you, serpent, will strike his heel. So there's going to be wounding both ways. But the wounds inflicted by the serpent on this he, this one born of woman, the seed of woman, the wounds that he experiences, he will recover from, again, presumably by way of resurrection, but the wounds inflicted by him, he, his, on the serpent, well, those are, that's a death blow. There's no recovery from that. It is a fatal crushing of the serpent's head. This is a fascinating verse of scripture. In fact, uh, theologians call Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first. Evangelium is uh, Latin for gospel. So in Genesis 3.15, we see the first gospel. Like, don't, don't miss that. Think of it. No sooner have Adam and Eve messed up then God steps in, this God who has created all things, called all things into his existence through his word. God steps in and says, I've got this. I've got hope for you. And the hope is through the bloodline of this woman. And through the bloodline of this woman will come a man, singular, masculine, who will crush the serpent's head. He'll be hurt in the process but it's a wound from which he'll recover. We've got all of that right here in Genesis 3.15. All of this, the first gospel, even before you get out of Genesis chapter 3. This idea of seed that we see in Genesis 3.15 um, is a theme that is traced through Scripture, um, through Abraham, like you meet Abraham, uh, what is it, eight chapters later in Genesis chapter 11. And so Abraham receives the promise that through, um, through your seed, Abraham, God will bless the entire world. And so um, there, there is a time when God is talking to Abraham about his seed, his offspring, and God talks about it in kind of plural terms like they and them. In fact, if you jumped ahead to uh, Genesis chapter 15, there's a time where God takes Abraham outside at night. It's a cloudless night and the stars are just in full array. And God says to Abraham, can you uh, count those stars? If you can, you know, go ahead and begin to count. And, and what you're going to be Counting is, is kind of the same thing as the number of your descendants, the, the number of your seed, they and them. It's uh, innumerable. It's an incredible thing. And then God morphs into talking about the seed of Abraham the same way he does in Genesis 3.15 in terms of he, singular, uh, masculine. In fact, let me give you an example of that. This is Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18. And here, uh, God is speaking with Abraham, and he says, in your seed, now this is singular, okay, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my 
voice. Now you might be saying, well, how do I know that word seed is singular? Because the word seed can kind of go both ways. It can be singular or it can be plural. Uh, last time I was at Costco, I bought a bag of grass seed. I bought a bag of seed. So I use the word seed, but it's plural. There's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of seeds in that bag. Uh, this word seed could go either way. How do we know that this is God using it in singular fashion? Well, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Galatians, he reflects back on this verse. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And look at this, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. That's an incredible statement. And here it is, all nations will be blessed through you. So, you know, this is cool. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can go back to the book of Genesis and you can read the gospel in seed form. It's, it's an incredible thing. And Paul, in this same chapter, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, he'll go on. In fact, in verse 16, he goes on to say, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then Paul goes on to explain something here. He says, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And so here Paul you know, goes into the grammar of it. And uh, as, we, as we mentioned, the word seed can go both ways. It can be singular or it can be plural. But to say seeds, uh, well, that's always plural. It can never be singular. And uh, so the fact that, you know, the word seed here, we know that it can go either way. But Paul points out that God has ultimately used this word seed in singular fashion referring to Jesus, he, uh, masculine to Jesus. By the way, in Genesis 3.15, why the seed of woman? Why her seed? Why not the seed of Adam? Why not the seed of man? Why is it the seed of woman? Why is it her seed? Well, again, here's Genesis 3.15, and I, God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, her seed. Uh, all of the commentators that I uh, consulted, the commentaries that I looked at, all of them pointed out how odd this statement is. This statement is really, really odd. It entirely breaks with Hebraic protocol. This statement entirely break, it's entirely countercultural uh, from what you would expect. It would have been far more in keeping with cultural norms to refer to the man's seed, not the woman's seed. It would be far more in keeping with, with uh, Hebraic protocol and cultural norms to say that it, that it would be the man's seed that would produce the male child. So this is a really, really odd statement. It's countercultural. It breaks with protocol. In fact, let me give you a sense of just how odd the statement is. So the Hebrew word that is translated seed here in Genesis chapter 3, that Hebrew word gets translated into Greek in the New Testament, and the Greek word is sperma, from which we get our English word sperm or seed. So really what we're saying here in Genesis 3, we're talking about her seed as in her sperma. Like, odd, right? This jumps out as breaking protocol. This jumps out as extremely odd, extremely unusual, extremely countercultural. And so God here presents something that is really, really unusual, breaks with protocol, breaks with male-centric terminology, breaks with a male-centered focus, and specifically in this verse points out one who will crush the serpent's head, and that one is the seed of woman, not the seed of man. I think there's a couple of uh, 
neat possibilities for conversation around this theme. I think one conversation could be that um, it's the woman who directly encounters the serpent. It's Eve who directly encounters the serpent. And it is Eve who is uniquely and singularly deceived by the serpent. That is not to say that Adam does not have culpability in this. He certainly does. In fact, in my own opinion, Adam is far worse. Eve was deceived, but Adam, he just went in with his eyes wide open. But it was Eve who was singularly and uniquely uh, confronted by and manipulated by the serpent, and she was uniquely deceived by the serpent. And so I think there's something really beautiful here and something that really um, is like grace here in this very early verse in Scripture that the power of this prophecy is given to her. It's given to Eve. Eve, it's through your own bloodline that redemption will come. And I think this prophecy would have been like in, um, incredibly encouraging to Eve. You know, you were the one directly manipulated by Satan. So God's saying, I want to encourage you that you're going to be the one who's going to bear the seed that's going to crush him, right? I think there's another sense in which uh, we know that Jesus is not the product of any male seed. We know that through um, prophecy in the Old Testament, like um, Isaiah chapter 7, for instance, where we read that um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We know that Jesus is not the product of any male seed or male father. We know that as we read the, the birth account of Jesus, we know that Mary is a virgin and uh, uh, what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, we see this, this really unusual, this breaking of cultural protocol here in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15, where, um, you know, Jesus is not the seed of man, but, uh, but is the seed of, of woman. Uh, that completely flies in the face of cultural protocol, but we do know that Jesus is not the product of a human father, that there was no man involved. And so the oddity and the countercultural uh, protocol breaking strange message in Genesis 3.15, well, it just gets reinforced the farther we move along in Scripture. And indeed, um, it continues to reinforce the gospel that we read about in the New Testament. Genesis 3.15 the, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, it's, it is the most thorough, the most doctrinal um, statement of the gospel in all the Old Testament. And it's a beautiful thing. We read right here in Genesis 3, there's going to be an odd birth of a woman that doesn't have the male seed emphasized, but rather the female seed, the female sperma. That's odd. And this individual will defeat Satan. And so this is God saying right from the get-go, he's coming. So be encouraged. Uh, be hopeful. He's coming. Well, I want to close today with three words, um, three quick points. All right. So here's the three words. See sense, and stomp. See, sense, and stomp. Okay, number one, see Jesus everywhere in Scripture. When you are reading any part of the Old Testament, try and to tie what you are reading into Jesus and the gospel. Um, in fact, Wherever you're reading in the Old Testament, whether it's in the Law of Moses or uh, the uh, wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes and, and the Proverbs or in the Psalms or the Prophets, wherever, try and see Jesus there. In fact, if in your reading you get any kind of a glimpse that connects to Jesus and to the gospel in any way, you're probably right to see that. We want to learn to see 
the Old Testament through a Jesus lens. He says the whole thing is about him. So we want to see him there. Now, if you're reading in the Old Testament and um, maybe you're reading somewhere and you kind of get stuck. Um, I'm sure that's happened to you. It's, it's definitely happened to me. Don't, don't just stay there desperately looking for Jesus and driving yourself crazy, okay? There's a lot we don't understand. So just keep reading, keep moving on. And when you do get a hint of something that seems like Jesus and sounds like Jesus and seems like the gospel, you're probably right to pursue that, that line of thinking. This is how we read scripture now. We read scripture through a Jesus lens, through with adjusted focus to see Jesus. He says the whole thing is all about him. So we want to see him not only in creation, we also want to see Jesus and how Old Testament imagery is fulfilled in him. Second thing, sense Jesus everywhere in creation. So again, whatever you're doing, when you're at work, when you're walking outside, when you're playing, when you're at school, uh, when you're doing uh, housework, whatever it is, homework, whatever it is, tie what you are experiencing into Jesus. So when we're reading scripture, tie what you're reading into Jesus and the gospel. And here, whatever you're experiencing, tie that into, tie your experience into Jesus. Again, he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the sustainer right now in this moment, holding all things together. And maybe you're, you know, maybe you feel like, well, I can't really tie my, you know, the creation into Jesus right now because I'm sitting in my house, I'm sitting on the couch or I'm lying in bed or, or whatever. We can still, you know, let's do this. Let's take like 10 seconds. I'm going to be quiet for 10 seconds, and I'll tell you what it starts, but I'll tell you what I, what I want us to do during these 10 seconds of quiet. Just in the quiet, just have an awareness that you're alive. In the quiet, just be aware that your heart is beating. Be aware that you're breathing. Be aware that you can touch your skin and touch your hair and... Be aware that there's a world outside of you and there's weather and there's creation and, you know, just to be aware that we, we want to see everything around us and everything that we experience, we want to see Jesus in that. It really changes everything. Let's just go ahead and take 10 seconds just to be aware of him. Thirdly, stomp on Satan's head. You say, what are you talking about? I'm thinking particularly of the words of Paul. This is Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now let's, let's be uh, declarative here and let's say for the record, that the defeat of Satan happened ultimately on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus ultimately defeats Satan. But there is still work to be done, practically speaking, because Satan continues to be a manipulator and a deceiver and a, uh, and a liar. He'll be fully finished off eventually. Who will finish him off? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? The God of what? Peace will soon crush Satan. Crushing sounds kind of violent. Being done by the God of peace. He, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. God wants to finish this off through the church. He wants to finish off the crushing of Satan through 
the church. God has the power to crush the head of the serpent, but he wants to lift the foot of the church to do it. And so we, the church, we crush the head of the serpent. We crush evil. We crush division. We crush corruption. We, the church, crush sin when we follow the God of peace. The God of peace, who's all about reconciliation, who is all about forgiveness who is all about mercy. And so when we, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, when we follow the God of peace, and when we, in our relationships, pursue reconciliation and pursue forgiveness and pursue mercy, we are crushing the head of Satan. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, I can't think of another time like our time right now when the church has been so divided. When there's been so much polarity and so much division and such a lack of unity as our time. And so think about your relationships. We, the church, we as brothers and sisters in Jesus, we crush the head of Satan when we choose to forgive when what we'd really rather do is to judge. We crush the head of Satan when we, as brothers and sisters in Jesus, when we reject the cultural trend to push for our own rights and to say, it's all about me. And to say, how dare you? And I've got my rights. And those people and us and them in this language of aggression, we, we crush the head of Satan when we reject all of those divisive cultural trends. And so think about the relationships in your life. You know... Disagreements happen. They happen everywhere in all of life and in the church. Disagreements happen between brothers and sisters in Jesus. That's normal. Disagreements happen, but disunity, that's a choice. And when we allow disagreements to become disunity because we choose that, not only are we not crushing the head of the serpent, we're actually kissing and caressing and cuddling the head of the serpent. And when we, the church, choose disunity, when we choose a posture that it's all about me, we lose our voice, we lose our witness, we lose our winsomeness, we lose our favor with our community, with our culture. And so we want to recognize that Jesus Christ, well, he has ultimately defeated Satan on the cross, but he's inviting us, the church, you and me, brothers and sisters in Jesus, SCF online, he's inviting us to partner with him in this final crushing of Satan in a practical sense as we together choose to follow the God of peace, who's all about reconciliation and forgiveness, mercy, and unity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have ultimately defeated Satan You've crushed his head by virtue of what you've done on the cross for us. Your death and your resurrection. Satan is an ultimately defeated foe. And thank you that you, Jesus, created the world, called all things into existence, even knowing in advance that we would fall short, 
and that even when you created, you would plan to do something about it, to come entering into the world you created as our redeemer, our rescuer, our savior. Even though you knew it would cause you pain, you went ahead to show your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lamb of God, slaughtered before the creation. And now, Jesus, you want to partner with us, with your church, to crush the enemy in a practical way. And this crushing takes place as we follow the God of peace. And as we pursue peace in our relationships, as we pursue forgiveness, as we pursue mercy, as we pursue unity in our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, we together crush the enemy. And so Holy Spirit, would you help us right now in this moment? Would you bring to our minds brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we have a relationship that rather than being marked by peace and forgiveness and harmony is, and unity is instead marked by tension and division and disagreement and a lack of harmony. Holy Spirit, help us to see this person or these persons clearly. Bring them to our minds right now, clearly. And Holy Spirit, would you give us the courage to pursue peace? Help us not to settle for less. Help us not merely to settle for a lack of conflict. Peace is so much more than simply a lack of conflict. Peace is the active existence of harmony. You are the God of peace. And so in our relationships where there is a lack of harmony, no matter whether they've stepped on our toes or we've stepped on theirs, Help us to see that we are the ones who need to pursue reconciliation as we follow the God of peace. And so would you inspire and motivate and compel us to take action this week to pursue relational harmony. We don't want to coddle or caress or kiss the head of the enemy. We want to crush him in the name of Jesus, the God of peace. Amen.